someone from the burning sands has reached up and grabbed a hold of the hem of the pilgrim's cloak. Who is this? Well, here we are. We are about to meet him. You know, it is Brunetto Latini or... Brunetto Latino, or Bernetto Latini, or Bernetto Latino. We'll talk about more of that in a bit. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We are in the 15th canto of Inferno, slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are at lines 25 through 45. Usually I do a big song and dance about where we've been. I don't want to. Because this hand has reached out from the burning sands and grabbed a hold of the hem of the garment of our pilgrim. So let's find out more about what exactly goes on in this unbelievably fraught scene, lines 25 through 45 of Canto 15 of Inferno. And I, as he reached out his arm to me, held the eyes of his cooked looks, and the sight of his burned face didn't stop my intellect from knowing who he was. Extending my hand down to his face, I asked, Sir Brunetto, are you here? And he, my son, don't be upset if Brunetto Latini, at least for a little bit, turns back to be with you and lets that line of guys go. And I to him, as much as I can, I pray it to be so. And if you'd like me to sit with you, I'll make it happen, if it pleases the one I'm following. My son, he said, whoever out of this herd stops even for a moment must lie down for a hundred years without being able to brush off even one bit of the fire that falls. So please walk on, and I'll come along at your feet. Then I'll go back to my band, who go along lamenting their eternal damnation. I did not dare get down from the road to walk next to him, but I kept my head down and went on as one who walks respectfully. We've come to the 15th canto of Inferno. We've come to one of the most opaque and difficult conversations in Inferno, and we have come to Brunetto Latini, or as I said, Brunetto Latino, or Brunetto Latini, or, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. This passage divides itself into three sections, a six-line bit, a nine-line bit, and a six-line bit. So let's just take it as it comes and see what happens, starting with the first six lines. If you remember, our pilgrim and the guide are walking along on the top of a levee or a dike or an embankment, and below them are the burning sands where the fire is sifting down like snowflakes except fire onto these figures. Capaneus has been stretched out onto this sand, and here come some guys up toward them, a group of guys, and one of them breaks off and grabs the hem of our pilgrim's garment. We are, just to remind you, in the third ring of the seventh circle of hell, the violent, and these are those who are violent against God, and we've seen the blasphemous, and now we've passed on to the homosexuals. After a moment of connection, we find these two the pilgrim and Brunetto facing each other. Here's how it starts. And I, as he reached out his arm to me, held the eyes of his cooked looks. There's all these burning, cooking, broiling metaphors that are going on because, of course, this place has the fire falling everywhere. And the sight, the passage goes on, of his burned face didn't stop my intellect from knowing who he was. And I just want to pause on that word, intellecto. The passage starts, and our encounter with Brunetto starts with a reference to the intellect. 
it's too far to say rational processing or thought processing, and yet intellect, though, is still coming out of a Thomistic tradition in which we're talking about the part of the mind that reasons. It's hard to say that after the Enlightenment because it's not Enlightenment reasoning, but still that reasons in a scholastic way that deduces from certain premises the functions of the world. You might say my brain, meaning not just your rational thought, but the way that you process the world as a whole. It's interesting that we start there because there is going to be so much beyond the intellect in this passage. And it starts in the next line, extending my hand down to his face, that bit of affection. Here's the pilgrim up on the dike or the levee. Here's Brunetto down on the sands. We'll talk more about who Brunetto is in a minute. That he's reached out and grabbed the pilgrim's hymn, and then, you know, reaching down your hand to touch his face, to touch this burning face of this shade who is being seared constantly by the falling fire. You should know there's a little bit of a textual problem here. The traditional text that I always use says la mano, the hand, reaching the hand toward his face. A lot of people prefer that to read la mia, mine, to his face, meaning I bent my face down to touch his face. And they want that because they want some kind of, well, just to be honest, some kind of almost homosexual affection between the two of them. I don't buy it. I like hand. I like the gesture. I like the implicit affection in it. And I like that it keeps the irony of the condescension in it, that the student is reaching his hand out to his teacher's face who is below him. I like that irony, so I'm going to go with hand. And then he asks, and this question is mind-boggling, Sir Brunetto, are you here? We're going to stop just on this. Why does he call him Sir Brunetto? Because Brunetto was a notary. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, so just hold that. An honorific position. Not necessarily knighthood, but an honorific position in government. We'll talk about it in a minute. And then this line, Sir Brunetto, are you here? Key here may be the most poignant word in this entire canto. Are you here? I found you and you're here burning up. Oh, it has such, such feeling to it. Siete voi qui. It's so simple. It's so plain stated. Now, you should know it's voi. He addresses, the pilgrim addresses Brunetto with the formal you, like vous in French, or like lei in modern Italian, or like z in German. He, he addresses him with the formal you. The only other person who has got this formality is Ferranata. And there are ways in which Ferranata and Brunetto are going to be running in parallel in the text, Canto 10 and Canto 15. But we're going to have to save that till we get farther into this canto. But right now, just know, formal address and the poignancy of, are you here? As if I found you or as if also, why are you here? You, this is where you ended up? You ended up here with the homosexuals? Let's talk about who Brunetto Latini was. Brunetto Latini, or Latino, I should tell you that in the comedy it is Latino. Consider it, his name something like this, Brunetto the Italian, 
or brunetto of the Italians, Latini, Latino, um, Latin, brunetto of the Italian people, of the um, brunetto, the Italian guy. It's, it's a loose translation of his name. Let's just call him Brunetto for now and know that even that slipped around a bit in the Middle Ages as names did. He's born probably around 1220 of the Common Era. He's older than Dante the poet by a good deal, maybe 40, 45, 50 years older. He is a Florentine Guelph, so he's on the same side of the Guelph-Ghibelline split that Dante is on, unlike Farinata. Farinata is a Ghibelline, remember? A Ghibelline war. Warlord. Brunetto is not a warlord, but he's on the Gelf side of things. He's a man of letters and a man of politics. And as I told you, he was a notary, not a notary public like we have now, or as I love it when people say notary republic, not a notary public as as we as we have now but a notary means he drew up peace treaties which we have out of brunetto's own hand he drew up execution papers we have some of those out of brunetto's own hand he drew up all kinds of legal documents and he served on various high councils in florence he had a very stellar political career but he also had a literary career. At one point, he was sent, and if you remember the opening of comedy, we talked about this, he was sent out of Florence to try to gain Castilian help against the forces coming down into Tuscany. And there he found himself on the bad side of the Battle of Monteperti, which had happened back in Tuscany. Brunetto couldn't get back home. He ended up living a while in parts of France. And that's where he wrote his first big work, Le Livre du Tresor, The Books of the Treasury, the Tresor as it's now called. It is the first encyclopedia in the West in a vernacular language. There are three parts of the Tresor, just to get into the weeds for a second. The first part is called Small Change, and that's kind of a rehearsal of the theoretical knowledge of heaven and earth. The second part is called The Jewels, and that is a discussion of vices and virtues and the practicality of living a virtuous life. And the third part is called The Gold, and that is, let's catch this, the rules of rhetoric or argumentation or proper writing, the rules of rhetoric and civic government. Notice what the gold is in Tresor. Most important to us is this is written in the vernacular French. It is the first encyclopedia in a vernacular language, and it becomes kind of, oh, what shall we say, Brunetto's calling card. It becomes, perhaps, in his own day, his most famous work. I don't think he wanted it to be, but it certainly does become that, because what he wanted to be is the next thing he wrote, the Tesoretto, or the Little Treasury, or the Little Treasure Box. This work he wrote in a dialect of Italian. And when it was written, it was the largest um, narrative poem in an Italian dialect. It is unfinished, but it is 2,944 couplets long. It is a encyclopedic-like work that has a narrative framework. Rather than being just a straightforward you know, presentation of knowledge, it's got this framework of a narrative around it. And in many ways, the Tesseretto is an echo of the comedy, or it is a forerunner of the comedy. You should know two things about the Tesseretto that are important. One, if you go 
all the way back in this podcast to the very beginning and where I talk about the Tesaretto and the opening lines of comedy and how they're repeated from the Tesaretto, you should know that the Tesaretto itself starts with a what is a small fable. We talked about this way back in episode one about the friendship amongst men. There's a lot of talk about why Brunetto is here and why is he amongst the homosexuals. I've always thought, wait a minute, in the Tesserato, he starts out with this kind of hymn to the friendship of men and why the friendship of men is so great. I've always thought, well, right there, I could explain why he's suddenly here with the homosexuals. And you should also know that Brunetto follows that up later with the Favolello, a smaller poem that is again based on Cicero's notion of male friendship. There's all kinds of stuff running around here that could be the basis for Brunetto Latini's uh, condemnation here. There's one more thing you should know about the Tesseretto. In it, Brunetto's guide is Ovid. Ovid leads Brunetto into the world of love and courtly love. And with Brunetto's appearance in comedy, the role of Ovid will become greater. We will see more and more of Ovid in comedy from here on out. And it's interesting that in the Tesseretto, Ovid is Brunetto's teacher. And after the appearance of Brunetto here in comedy, Ovid's writings become more important to the structure of comedy itself. We've already seen Ovid several times. I've already brought it up, brought up Metamorphoses several times as we've talked about comedy, but it's just fascinating that Ovid becomes increasingly important in comedy itself after the appearance of Brunetto. One more thing. Before we pass off of all of this, a love poem has surfaced written by Brunetto to a fellow male poet. This is in some dispute, I should tell you. It is written while Brunetto is in exile in parts of France. It does express a courtly longing for another man. And this other man, this other poet, does respond It's hard to know how serious to take it because the rhetoric of courtly love is hard to parse. And some people discount this poem as a kind of elaborate staged joke. It does talk about the longing of being away from you and the longing of distance between us. But it's hard to know how much of that is staged since so much of courtly love was staged. And is this a kind of very funny joke between poets? Oh, you know, dude. I miss you so much. Is it like that? Or is it something serious? And there there is some dispute on this love poem that has surfaced from Brunetto to a fellow poet. Although you can say, well, look, there it is. There's the proof of why he's with the homosexuals. That's enough to say about Brunetto outside of comedy. Now let's turn back to the comedy itself and look at him in the passages. Brunetto starts, my son, and it's hard not to hear those words, my son. There may be a teacher-student relationship, let me talk about that in a second, between Brunetto and Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet, but more importantly, there's a father-son dynamic going on between them. And that Brunetto starts out, my son, shifts the dynamic from what we might expect, older poet, younger poet, 
into a familial relationship. And remember when those band of guys came up to Virgil and Dante who were rocking along the dike? And I told you that it, they were described, those band of guys, as a familia, a family. Isn't it interesting that that got set up and then Brunetto's first words are my son. Was Brunetto Latini Dante's teacher? Probably not. I would say that the more I read, the more I'm convinced that Brunetto Latini in real life probably wasn't Dante's teacher. Their age difference is too great and their class difference was fairly great. It's doubtful that this middle-aged, very established political figure would have taken on Dante, our poet. It's certainly set up here that Dante, the poet, wants you to think that he was deeply connected to Brunetto Latini, and he is. His poetry is deeply connected to him. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Let's just go back to Brunetto's comments. My son, don't be upset if Brunetto Latini, and he names himself, there is no paraphrases here because Latini wants to name himself, and this is going to become important to the passage later on. Latini wants to put his name out there first. Look at me, I'm Brunetto Latini. Remember? remember me. And if you forget me, I'm going to tell you my name. It's very important that this happens because of what's going to come next and what they're going to talk about. So he says, don't be upset if Brunetto Latini, at least for a little bit, turns back with you and lets that line of guys go on and they go on. And the pilgrim says, as much as I can, I pray it to be so. And you should know that this language gets very floral. It gets very elaborate. It gets rhetorically highfalutin in many ways, and it's going to keep vaulting up. There's a little bit of one-upsmanship between the two of them in the passage. It's not quite so bad as it was with Farinata, but it harkens back to it. And there's just a little bit of it going on because the rhetoric keeps vaulting. As much as I can, I pray it to be so. And if you'd like me to sit with you, I'll make it happen if it pleases the one I'm following. Oh, there's an oblique reference to Virgil, who's standing right there. This is curious, if it pleases the one I'm following. Hey, there's Virgil. Just think, Brunetto Latini is the first contemporary literary figure to really appear in comedy. There have been a lot of classical figures who who appeared in Limbo. There have been some other referenced contemporary uh, figures like Guido Cavalcanti, who was referenced in Canto 10. But this is the first time we get a full-on look at a contemporary literary figure. Notice that the old classical guy standing there just gets this weird oblique reference. If it pleases the one I'm following, you know, you know, that old guy back here. But you should also think this. This is being set up as a battle of the teachers. Here's Virgil, Dante's teacher guide, Dante's star, Dante's lead in one sense of the word. And here's Brunetto, the guy who wrote in dialect, who wrote in French, who wrote in an Italian dialect, who wrote in the vulgar, in the vernacular. Here are two different teachers, and it suddenly seems as if our pilgrim, and maybe our poet, is pivoting from the old guy to the contemporary, 
right before our eyes. Brunetto goes on, my son, and he repeats it in case we missed it. Whoever out of this herd stops even for a moment must lie down for 100 years without being able to brush off even one bit of the fire that falls. This gives us an excuse for why they can't have a longer conversation. It also sets up how they're going to walk, which is Dante on top of the dike and Brunetto down on the sands below. And they can't stop. They can't have a long conversation. They have to keep moving because if he stops, he's going to get stretched out like Capaneus and have to lie there for a hundred years without even batting off the fire. This bit is important because it adds to the irony of the passage. And we're going to pass on and see that in the last bit. Brunetto says, so please walk on and I'll come along at your feet. Then I'll go back to my band who go along lamenting their eternal damnation. This is such a reversal that the teacher, the older poet, well, contemporary, but the the master of the vernacular in Dante's own day is now at the feet of Dante walking along. So it's an inverted relationship, but then it it stops being inverted. Notice the next three lines. I did not dare get down from the road to walk next to him, you know, because you're going to get burned up by that fire. But I kept my head down and went on as one who walks respectfully. So while it's inverted that the teacher is at the foot of the student, at the same time, the student is bending his head down to walk reverentially or respectfully with his teacher, the way a teacher in a medieval university would expect his students to behave, to walk with their heads lowered as he walks forward and talks. And of course, it's always going to be a he. It's a medieval university after all. So just think about what's going on here. The traditional teacher-student hierarchy is both inverted and invoked in the same passage. You talk about the anxiety of influence. This is clearly it at its core. Remember the old Harold Bloom idea that writers are always trying to get out from under the influence of their paternal writing uh, forebearers, their fathers, as it were. This is that anxiety of influence. It's both honoring your teacher and it's also putting him down in the text all at the same moment. It's such a curious bit as they ramp up their rhetoric between the two of them and as they move out into the next passage. But I should tell you right now, and it's important to know this before we move on to the next episode of this podcast, Brunetto has been here all along. Remember that bit about the tides and the Flemish and uh, holding back the sea? And Do you know that that's really copying Brunetto's notions of tides and ha- and dikes and all this stuff from the Tresor. There's even wording that from the Tresor, from his book, The Treasury, that encyclopedia, that's being picked up right there at the beginning of Canto 15. Brunetto is shot throughout this canto. So many of the lines within it play on lines from Brunetto's own works. And it is an astounding interplay of rhetoric in which the student, Dante, is taking the master's, Brunetto's, words and warping them, changing them, disguising them, corrupting them, setting them down in his own text, which is also in the vernacular. It's an incredible bit of rhetorical bravado. 
And wait till you hear what happens next, because Brunetto's going to go on, and he's going to get closer to Farinata, and he's going to get closer to what happened in Canto 10, but he's going to express it in ways that reveal his own rhetorical, well, brilliance and emptiness, all at the same moment. So come back, subscribe to this podcast, wait for that next episode when Brunetto goes on, well, he's going to knock us all off our saddles because he's going to end up being the smartest guy and also the most rhetorically challenged guy that we could ever imagine all in one passage that is all circulating around the anxiety of influence and the person that Dante the poet at least wants us to think is his teacher, even if he wasn't really. Well, can the irony get better? Subscribe, come back. I can't wait till we pass on in Canto 15. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.